Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Joel, and I help run the Connections team here at Novation. Such a privilege. I just was looking out throughout the morning and just realizing how grateful I am to be a part of this bigger family called Novation. I appreciate so many of you so much. I'm going to pray for us this morning because we get to learn about how great our God is through the life of David. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for being able to study someone that followed after you, who was not a perfect man, had many times lots of things that he messed up in, but you called him a man after your own heart. So that's my prayer for all of us today, is that we can move into, what does that look like for me in my life? That I can be someone who's called and pursuing you all the days of my life. Father, I pray that you speak through me today that I can get out of the way, that it won't be about me. We need to hear from you. I thank you for this opportunity, and I pray that you minister to our hearts today. Heal those that need healing. Encourage those that need to be encouraged. And build us up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what does the movie Rocky, The Karate Kid, and I've never seen the movie Miracle, the hockey movie, Lord of the Rings. How many of you have seen Newsies? That's one of our family's favorite. All of this group's going to raise their hand. What do these things have in common? The tortoise and the hare. Thank you. The Denver Broncos versus the Green Bay Packers, Super Bowl 32. No one thought the Broncos would win. No one picked them to win, but they were triumphant. These are all stories of David and Goliath, right? That's become a term that we now know in society. Whether you know the Bible or a lot, you've heard this term, David versus Goliath. And it's this underdog story. What is it about the underdog that we all love? I, I started studying that a little bit as Scott gave me this message to prepare. And I found several articles, and several of them talked about the same things. There was three main reasons why we sociologically like the underdog story. We want to root for the underdog. The first, I think it's German. I didn't look up the root of it. It sounds German, so we'll go with that. It's called Schadenfreude. Anyone heard of that? Schadenfreude. Someone knows about it. Schadenfreude is this twisted thing that we have as humans where we like to see other people suffer. If you've been on Facebook or watched YouTube videos, you've seen those videos of people who just keep falling down on ice, and it's like, I shouldn't be laughing that they're falling and hurting themselves, but... I do, and I watch it again. There's this thing in us, though, where we like to see those who are in power fall, right? That's what America's Funniest Home Videos came, like, that's the whole reason to watch it, right? It's all those funny clips of dads playing baseball with their kids. They throw it, and the kid hits them in the stomach or somewhere else, and we just laugh. It's something. So there's this thing inside of us that does that. What else do we, why do we want to root for an underdog? And it's justice. There's something wrong about baseball not having a salary cap. So I know there's a few Yankee fans in here, but for the rest of us, most of us don't like the Yankees inherently because they're the ones with the biggest payroll, or maybe it's the Dodgers or pick your team, right? There's something about there's this justice, like that's unfair, so we root for these teams that are going to be able to beat the team that's got all the money. For me, it's the Patriots. Like they just don't ever win, like don't ever lose, so I just don't like them. The last one was interesting. The last one was that a lot of times we'll root for the underdog because if we root for the favorite and the favorite loses, then it hurts us a lot more. 
So think Broncos versus Seahawks. Like, I knew the Broncos were going to win, and that was a miserable day because we got destroyed. So it's funny how our minds work that way. Every year in, in the basketball world, there's basketball teams that play in March Madness, and you find, I find myself rooting for all these teams that have no chance at winning. But it's because if they win, then I can get really excited about that. But if they lose, it's not really that big of a deal because I'm not as invested in it. They weren't supposed to win. So here we find ourselves. Why are we rooting for the underdog? Well, part of why we root for this is because what we get to learn about today is David the giant killer. Now, David wasn't the only one that God used who was in a situation where he should not have won, but he did. Some other instances where we see this in the Bible is the story of Gideon. I love Gideon's story. Because you see, Gideon was the leader of this army, and God was like, you know what? There's too many people in your army. Usually not a problem. But for some reason, God was like, let's make sure that people know why this battle was won. So he took 32,000 people, and he said, whoever's afraid or doesn't want to be here, go home. So like a couple left, right? Like 22,000 left. So we have 10,000 people left. He cuts it more than in half. And God looks at the situation and he goes, you know what? If you go into battle with 10,000 people, you may still think that you're the reason that you won. So let's change this a little bit again. So he says, take them all to this spring. We went to the spring. I know I shouldn't say it. We went to Israel, like Scott kept saying. But we went to Gideon Spring. It's the exact same place. So he takes all these people and he goes, go and drink water from this place. So everyone that reached down with their hand and pulled it up, was going to be put aside. Everyone that went down into the water and just drank straight from it, they were going to go home. How many were left? There were 300 people left. So we go from 32,000 in the army, which is formidable, and you may be able to go, yeah, look at what we did, to 300. And then when they go out to battle, God tells them, don't even use weapons. (laughs) And somehow they win. Let's pay attention to these stories when God makes the odds so impossible and yet still comes through, right? You look at Joseph. Joseph was another one who was an underdog. He has a dream as a young man, and he shares this dream with his brothers. And obviously it made him mad because the dream was that they were going to bow down before him. So as a youngest in the group, or the second youngest, he's thinking, this probably isn't going to be that big of a deal if I share this story, right? Well, they decide, no, let's sell him as a slave. So they sell him, and he gets moved away. They tell his dad that he died. This is not how Joseph was thinking this was going to happen by telling this story. So Joseph goes away, then he gets this job at this place, and he's working there faithfully, still trusting that God has a plan in the middle of this. And what happens? The, the owner's wife comes on to him, and he rejects it and says no. So what does she do? She stirs up trouble, gets him thrown in jail. So now here Joseph is again, after being sold as a slave, now he's in jail. And what does God do in this situation? He brings him out of that, and he makes him second in command of all of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at that time. God took what was impossible, and he made it possible. So let's read about David. I'm going to put up some excerpts. This is most of David's story here with David and Goliath. And kind of David and Saul is all 1 Samuel 16 and 17. So we're going to read through some excerpts, however you say that word, about this story. So it says this. It says, King Saul and the Israelites drew up 
their battle line to meet the Philistines. And a champion named Goliath came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. That's a pretty tall dude. Some say nine six, some say nine nine. So think three feet taller than Corey. We're talking about a, a hefty fella. Goliath said this, he said, this day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give a man and let's fight each other. When the Israelites saw Goliath, they ran from him in great fear. They were afraid. David overhears this. He's here in the camp and he hears it. And David said to Saul, who was the king of Israel, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul said, you were but a boy or a youth. And David said, the Lord will deliver me from his hand. He wasn't pulling it on himself. David said, the Lord will deliver me. Goliath said, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Come here and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David replied, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. It's an important piece to remember in this story. As Goliath moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. He slung a stone and struck the Philistine on the forehead. It sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And so David triumphed over Goliath with a sling and with a stone. David didn't stop there. David went over, he picked up his sword, Goliath's sword, and he chopped off his head. Sorry for the kids that are in here, but that's in the Bible, so we have to tell it. So David was a giant killer. That's what we see here. But we need to look at the story a little deeper to realize how did this come about? How could this youth beat this soldier? And we're going to look today at three characteristics of giant killers. So to be a giant killer, you have to realize that there are giants in our lives. And not all of us face someone like Goliath, necessarily. Unless you look at it as, instead of it being a physical thing, what are those Goliaths that are in your life? I'm aware today that some of you are dealing with health issues that are a Goliath in your life. Or finances. Many of us struggling paycheck to paycheck. And it feels so big and insurmountable. Uh, for some of us, it may be emotions. I've been dealing with, with some deep emotions that I've been looking at in my life. Why do I act the way that I do? Or maybe it just be situations or dreams where you think, oh, if only I could have that, but it seems so big and so far away and just impossible. So we want to look at these characteristics. The first one is that they're prepared... These, the giant killers are being prepared by being faithful to the ordinary things. We need to be faithful to the ordinary things. It says in 1 Samuel 17, 15, during this, David was, was there. He went back from Saul. He was Saul's armor bearer. So he carried Saul's armor at this point. But during this, at one point, he went back to be with him. It's 1 Samuel 7, 15. He went back to tend to his father's flock. You see, David still cared about his dad. 
And he went back to do something so simple. We learned last week, Brian taught us so well, what it was, David just being a humble shepherd boy. So I'm going to ruin the story of David and Goliath for some of you because it ruined me as I was preparing for this. So you get to be ruined in it with me. A lot of scholars have realized that David most likely was not a very young boy when he fought Goliath. It's not going to change the story. It's still a giant of a man. But as I read and I studied, I realized there's several factors that show us that David wasn't really that little. So David, as he was growing up, he got anointed and was little. And when Samuel came to anoint him as the next king, he thought it was David's older brother who was said to be, was said to be big. And he thought by that time that, that between now and then, David may have grown up. David, when before he fought Goliath, had also twice defended the sheep that he was guarding. He once was with a bear and once was with a lion. So most 12-year-olds, Bryson, how old are you? So I don't think that Bryson is going to go after and attack a lion that has one of the sheep in its mouth. Now, you might think that you could do it, but what that takes is a level of later teenage stupidity <laughs> or courage, depending on how you look at it. Bryson's smart enough to know the lion's probably better than me. Now, there's some 17, 18, 19-year-olds in this room who might think, I could go get that thing. And they could hunt down that lion. Now, not many, but he hunted down this lion. So we've got to keep that in mind. Like, it doesn't really say, but we've got to keep in mind, like, there is that arrogant factor of, like, late teenagehood. So the other things that we see is when, when he did say, I want to go fight Goliath, when he was the one who heard Goliath cry, and he felt like, man, why is this guy disrespecting our God? It wasn't even him or the army. He said, you were disrespecting my God. And he goes to Saul and says, I will do it. Saul looks at him and says, you're young. You can't do this. So the word young could be infant here, and it's also used in the Bible as one of the men who was a commander in God's army. So it's a range there. And then what, what did Saul do? Saul said, I'm going to give you my armor. Now, if I had armor on and Bryson was here, I wouldn't try to put armor that fits me onto Bryson because that just doesn't make any sense. Like, logically, you wouldn't take a full-grown man's armor put on there. So David had to have been at least near the same size. Now, Saul was a very large man as well. It talks in the Bible that Saul was a head above everybody else. But he was also a large person. So David, we're, we're realizing, must have been a little bit bigger. And again, it doesn't change the story necessarily. For some of you, it may, it's, it's more fun to think of an 8-year-old going to do this. But the reality is, even as a 19-year-old or a 20-year-old, however old David was, this seemed like an insurmountable task. No one else in the army would fight this giant. So where else do we see this? We need to see that we need to be faithful in the ordinary things. I've looked up several stories. I was trying to think of, and almost the majority of the stories in the Bible is God using people who are just ordinary, like you and me, one of them, Noah. Noah was 500 years old when he was told to build the ark. And at 600 years old is when the flood came. So it took Noah 75 to 100 years to build this ark. It had never rained, and people around him looking at him going, why are you building an ark, first of all? Why are you building an ark that's so big? You must be nuts. 
So for 70 years, he did what was ordinary to him, and he was faithful because God had told him to build this ark. I'm sure I would have been one of the ones ridiculing him. Like, what are you doing? Why do you need a boat this big? You're insane. But Noah was faithful. We see it in Joshua, the story there, where Joshua's marching around the walls of Jericho, right? Doesn't make any sense. One of the strongest fortified cities in all of Israel, and they decide that the way that they're going to defeat it is by walking around it and playing instruments. Catch the irony here. What is God doing? He's setting up another story where he is the one that comes through and is victorious. Because we could walk around the church. I don't think that it's falling down, let alone a fortified city, right? So what are these ordinary things that we're doing? You see, giant killers didn't start out as giant killers. Got a good quote from a man named B.F. Westcott. It says, great occasions do not make heroes or cowards. They simply unveil them to the eyes of me. Silently and imperceptibly, I had to look that word up. Imperceptibly means you can't notice the change. So it goes silently and you can't, it's such a small movement that you can't even tell the change. As we wake or sleep, we grow strong or we grow weak. And at last, some crisis shows us what we have become. For me, I want to skip over doing some of the ordinary things. I want to watch my son graduate next year without having to put through the hard work of what we did at times. I've catch myself a lot of times, especially with three-year-olds, thinking, if only they could not be three anymore. I want to fast forward the tape until six or seven where it's a little bit easier. But the reality is, is I don't want to miss that in-between part. That's the ordinary. That's the place that God is calling us to be faithful to. So I thought, what are some of the areas that I'm skipping and I'm wanting to, to pass over that? For mine, some of it is my parenting. There's things in life that are hard to parent through. Those of you that have done it, I commend you. Those of you that still have little kids, buckle up because it's going to be, it's just a hard ride. My marriage is another one. There's times that I want to be able to have peace and comfort and love in our marriage without putting the hard work that it takes to go through it. Because those hard conversations around hopes and dreams, those hard conversations around how do we want to parent? What are we going to do to be able to find times for ourselves in the middle of all of this? I want to be able to get to the end and go, well, we had a good marriage. But you can't skip through these things. So what are the things we need to be faithful in around my house? I need to be more faithful with weeding. Who loves to garden? and weed. There's got to be a few of you. God bless you. It's like, I, I hate it. It's the worst to me. But God's called me to be faithful in that. Like, that's part of my dominion. It's things that I need to be a faithful steward of. Laundry, and some of that may be because, like, there's so much laundry. You don't even know. Like, with this many kids, like, we could probably do 12 loads a day, it feels like, sometimes, and we still wouldn't catch up. Snow shoveling, who loves to snow shovel? My kids have got really good at it. I'm so grateful to have teenagers who I can tell to go do that. <laughs> Brian talked about traffic earlier, so I was looking at work. Like, what are the things at work that I'm called to be faithful in? 
and to not grumble and complain. Traffic is one of those for me, receipts. I don't know why, but I have a really hard time turning in coding and returning my receipts. Like, I just hate it. But I need to be faithful in it because if I don't, then it slows down our accounting team. And I put a burden on someone else. What about for all the, the school kids in here? What about your homework? How many of you love, just love doing your homework? I've got a couple that actually do. Homework, tests, all those things. God called us to be faithful. We're here at church teaching Sunday school. God bless Mark and that whole team. We should give them a round of applause because they allow us to be in here, to worship, to be together. And that is such a thankless job. Those of you who go pick up kids, thank the teachers that are over there today. Uh, cleaning team. We could use some people on the cleaning team still. Got a little love for the cleaning team. No one loves to mop the sanctuary. Maybe, I mean, maybe. But like when I've done it, it's not like I'm like, this is my favorite thing I get to do. No, why do we do it? Because we're faithful in the little things. We're cleaning toilets. Like I feel bad for all the ladies that have to clean those men's urinals. Like that shouldn't ever happen. I try to always clean the bathrooms if I'm on the team because... Women shouldn't have to deal with that. Security team. You guys know we have a security team that takes care and like protects this area. And they may be listening right now, but a lot of times it means missing out on part of the service. Or home group leaders. Thank you to all the home group leaders who tirelessly give up their homes, invite people in. Like there's a lot of thankless jobs here at church. But the point of this is we want to be good at doing those ordinary things. If we're going to someday need to face a giant. Because like that quote said, we're going to wake up and there's going to be a crisis. And what we've done along the way is really going to determine how we show up in that crisis. The second characteristic that I want to look at is that the giant killers see possibilities and not problems. They see the possibilities of a situation and not only the problems of the situation. Scott sent me a, he, he was kind of humble brag kind of a thing, he sent me a, a quote that he had put on Facebook like four years ago, and it talks about how when you see an acorn, who's ever seen an acorn? Growing up here, I didn't know what size they were. The ones that I saw are actually really little. They're kind of cute little like, so I was, whenever I'm somewhere, either Florida or other places, like I like picking them up, throwing them at things, just because I'm not used to seeing them, but they're actually pretty small. The acorns create this giant oak tree. So that's what he was saying is when you see an acorn, what do you see? Do you just see that little acorn? Or are you able to see past it into what that could become? Because that little acorn could grow into that giant oak tree, a formidable thing. When Goliath looked out and he saw David, he snickered and laughed and jeered at him. Because what he saw was a young man who was coming to him without any armor. And he thought it was a joke. He said, what do you think I am, a dog? Like he wanted to fight a warrior. What he didn't realize is that he was up against a warrior much stronger than him. Because when God looked down on that valley and he stirred David's heart and said, I want you to be the one to go fight him, God didn't see a young man. God saw a king who just hadn't become king yet. Because we were able to see the possibilities Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is believing what you cannot see. Can we really look into our situations today 
and turn that script around and see what God has in store instead of the problems and all the trial. I'm too good at looking at the situation and going, I can't do it. I don't have what it takes. Instead of looking and saying, God, like you must be up to something big. We see it in that term, keep your eyes on Jesus. When Peter was in the boat and he saw Jesus walking on the water, Peter saw possibility. And Peter says, if it's really you, like let me come out to you. And Jesus said, come on, well, let's do this. Like, like someone's stepping up, like you've got eyes of faith. So he steps out of that boat and he starts walking towards Jesus. And he's doing it, he's looking at him. He's seeing the possibility of because of what Jesus can do, I can do this. And what does he do? He takes his eyes off of him and he notices the storm and the chaos and immediately he begins to sink. How is that like my life? Where God says, Joel, go do this. I step out of the boat and I'm excited and I go to do it and then all of a sudden I look around and go, no one's doing this with me. <laughs> I'm the only one. Why do I have this conviction that no one else has? And I start to sink because I take my eyes off of Jesus. We see it in Hebrews 12. Many of you may know this passage, but it's the passage that talks about there's a great cloud of witnesses and how we're to run a race based on that and we're to shed off all the sin and the things that entangle us and we're to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Because for the joy set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He stepped up and said, I can take that for all of you. Scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? And sometimes we miss part of why the writer was writing this. Because in the very next verse, it talks about how the reason that we're to pay attention to Jesus and keep our eyes on him is so that we don't grow weary. How many of you are weary today? And the reason that I'm weary is because at times I take my eyes off of Jesus. So here's our question when we're facing giants. It's this. It's how big is this giant compared to God? Because it's easy to look at the giant thing and think, ah, oh, that, that's too big, I can't do it. How big is that giant compared to God? David knew. David knew that his God was bigger than any nine foot nine, nine foot six human being. All that that represented, David knew. So what are the reasons that I don't see the possibilities? And you can ask yourself that same question. What holds you back from seeing the possibilities? The first one for me is unbelief. There's simply times that I don't trust that God's going to be big enough. In my humanity and my brokenness, I look at the situation and I just, I have unbelief. I don't encourage this. It's not the route to go because it causes me so much pain. But I want to be honest. There's moments in my life where there's unbelief. And we see it in scripture as well. Great story. I love this story. It encourages me and builds me up. There's a man whose son is having seizures and is attacked by an unclean spirit. It's in Mark 9, 23 through 25. So he's talking to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can just come, if you could just heal, 
my boy, I know that he could get well. And Jesus' reply is kind of coy. He says, if I can, or says, if you can, meaning like in jest, like, what do you mean if I can? Did you hear the stories about me? And he says, all things are possible for those who believe. All things are possible for those who believe. And immediately, this is not what happened, immediately the guy says, no worries, I believe, and everything's going to be fine, right? Is that how he responded? This was a beautiful response. It's a human response. He says this. He says, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Because he was weighed with both. He did believe that Jesus could do it, but he was being real, and he was saying, but there's part of me that doesn't. Please get rid of that part of me. And I think that's how Jesus wants to respond. I don't think the goal is to get rid of all of the unbelief because we're humans and I don't know if that's possible. Hopefully, I think as we grow older and as we move closer to being like Jesus, that does happen. There's still gonna be those areas of our hearts where we say, ah, this is so hard, I don't know. I don't know if I can believe. And that's where that cry is, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. When we couple those two together, that's when God can work. Because it's not us fixing something, but it's him coming through. So unbelief is one. The other for me is independence. You guys ever have those days where you wake up and you know that you need God to show up in your life or you're hosed? Like you're done if God doesn't show up. How easy is it in those days to be quick on that phone line with God? Like, God, help me today. I need help this minute. I need help again. Like, that's me a lot of days that I get up here to try to preach. Like, I know that I'm dependent on God. Or if there's a big thing happening at work, maybe you're selling to the biggest client you've ever sold something to. We just have those days where we know that we need God. And for me, there's also Tuesday. I know what happens on a Tuesday. And I don't wake up with that same ferocious need for Jesus on those days. And that's what I'm working on in my life right now. I know that I need to wake up more dependent than ever instead of in the rut of my life. We sang about it. It's his breath in our lungs. I have a practice when we're singing that song here at church that during that line, actually, deep breath in and out because it centers me and reminds me like, Jesus, I need your breath. I need his breath to get up here and speak to you today. I'll need my breath later on today when I travel for work. It's his breath in my lungs. Are we that dependent on God today, church? Because I want us to be. Brian even mentioned it last week, but I'm gonna use the same verse, John 15, five. I am the vine, you are the branches. You remain in me and I in you. You will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's have the humility that it takes to think, God, I can't get through my day without you. Because that's what David was doing here. He knew that he couldn't in his own strength defeat Goliath. But he knew that someone had to take a stand against him and that God would prevail. How about we take a look at what God sees rather than what we see? The third thing is that we need to give credit where credit is due. If we want to be a giant killer, 
We need to give credit where credit is due. This is where I just mentioned, but it's this quality called humility. You can fill that in on your notes. We need to have the humility to know that it's not about us. It's not about the things that we've done. But instead, it's about what God may be able to do through us. That humility is what it's going to take. If you have a giant in your life, then you have the humility to be able to say, God, I'm going to surrender myself to you so that you can win this battle. Or is it about you? Because sometimes it's about me. I've got this human sake where I want other people to like me. I want them to think well of me, to be proud of me for the things that I've accomplished in life. That's a dangerous place to, to go out into battle from. Because then there's part of me that's torn, like, ah, please love me, please help me do well so that you will build myself up rather than submitting and saying, God, I want it to be about you. Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, 46, it says, Today the world will know that there is a God in Israel. David didn't want to go into battle to become some great general or to be some great leader. David wanted to go beat that giant so that God would be glorified. He looked at it as an opportunity to say, Today all of these people will know that there is a God in Israel. Because I'm going to walk out onto this battlefield looking like a chump, without any weapons, and I'm going to take this guy down because God's going to empower me to do it. And when that happens, God then gets the glory. See a great verse, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 27. It says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, so there's not going to be very many wise, not many mighty, not many noble are called. God is talking about who he is calling, and not many wise, not many mighty, and not many noble. Those of you that have those traits, you're one of the few. The rest of us who came to God stumbling, bumbling, without much, like that's what he's pointing out here. We're called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the the things that are mighty. Those of you that are feeling weak today, that look at that Goliath that's in your life, think, I can't do it. Like I said, maybe it's finances. Maybe it's health. That's a great place to be because God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things of the mighty. Because when God can use us, the normal, when you can stop and pray with someone that you work with, when you can reach out to a friend when you know they're not feeling well, it may feel like a very ordinary thing, but it's not. It's the things that are making you into a giant killer. So that way when you do wake up on that day of crisis, God will have been able to change you moment by moment, small thing by small thing, and to someone that, that has the ability to spit under God and say, I can stand against you because I've, got, I've seen God do so many things over the years. So what are those giants? I want to take a few minutes. We're going to listen to a song. And I want you to ponder, what are those giants that are in your life today?
I touched on earlier, I've been meeting with a counselor to help me um, through some of my childhood stuff. Just, there's something going on. Turning 40 this year, there's like, there's just some angst and I'm trying to figure out like, why do I act the way that I do? And the biggest giant that I feel like I'm facing right now in this world is the reality that it's really hard for me to accept love from you people as, as well as from God. And I'm trying to look into why is it so hard for me to accept God's love. Now, there is one caveat, and this is where I'm trying to figure out what's going on. The one caveat is if I actually feel like I've done something well for someone or for God, then I will receive the love back. So that's why I serve at the church. That's why I clean. That's why I work really hard at work is because I feel like if I can just work hard enough, then God will love me. I can't sit often like a little boy whose dad does love him, not because of the things that he's doing. I feel like I've got this need. Now, I don't think it in my head. Theologically, I would say, no, that's not what I believe. I don't believe that I need to work to get God. I know that God truly loves me, but I'm talking that, like, guttural, like, the things that drive me. You know, tracking, like, when I get to that level... And I start reaching out and I'm like, ah, why? Why do I send text messages to people encouraging them, hoping that in that moment they'll send something back and make me feel good about myself? I know it may seem small to some of you, but to me this is a giant that I'm attacking right now. And the hardest part is that I can't do anything about it. I can't work harder to beat this giant. What I'm being shown is that I have to sit quietly and listen to God's voice and listen to what he says about me. Listening to a great song on the way to church today, put it on my playlist because it makes me cry. That's a good thing for some of us. It's a song by Jason Gray and it's called Remind Me Who I Am to You. I'm going to forget who I am and I need you to remind me. And that's my work right now is just to sit before the Father and say, God, I need you to love me, and I'm not going to try to do anything back. Even though for 40 years, that's been my strategy, because I'm pretty good at it. I'm pretty good at finding ways to make other people happy and doing that for them and taking care of their life. And it's kind of twisted, because I really want it to come back to me. I want people to think, man, Joel's such a good guy. Look at all the things that he does. And it's kind of crumbling in a good way, because I'm having to take the step back and say, I don't want it to be about me. God, I want it to be about you. So I want us to listen to this song. And I want you to look for a different perspective. When you're facing that giant, because we all are, there's those things in the life that are so big to us. And there's a different strategy that we can take. And this song, as I was preparing and I was listening to it this week, really struck me that I really like to sit and listen. So just sit and listen. And sing along if you want to, but really focus on, okay, what are those giants? And what's maybe this different strategy that I could do with this? i 
For some of you, if you're like me, we need to change the way that we look at this. We need to realize that it's not about how hard we can try to beat the giant. It's not on your shoulders. Jesus asks you to take that weight that you're carrying and to put it off. To carry his weight, which is light. So symbolically, it may be worth doing that for you, to take that off. The reason I love the beauty of this song of Raise a Hallelujah is because all that I can do at times is to raise my voice and praise God. Hallelujah just means a thousand praises. And I need to change my heart into thinking, oh, I'm going to beat this thing. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm... You hear a lot of I in those statements. Instead of God, you, you come through for me today. Because today is a day that God wants to come through for you. So let's change that perspective. I'm going to invite some of you up for prayer. If you have some giants in your life and you need someone to stand with you, don't miss this opportunity. Don't miss the humility that it takes to tell someone else that you're struggling. That life's beating you up right now. Don't miss out on the joy that you can feel when you don't have to carry that burden all by yourself. That someone else wants to be there with you. So I'm gonna pray and send us out. But please come up front. If you need prayer with someone, I'll be up here and others will as well. So Father, I thank you for the story of David. I thank you for the improbability of it. That a young man could face a giant of a man and not to try to get something out of it from himself, but simply to say, you will not defy my God. You will not stand there in the face of my God mocking us. I will stand against you in God's strength so that he can be glorified. I thank you for the courage that it took in that young man. And that's part of what helped shape him become a man who was after your own heart. May that be true of all of us today. That you'll find those little instances that, that we need this week that seems so unimportant and so ordinary. Maybe it's helping someone on the side of the road. Maybe it's bringing food to someone that's homeless. Maybe it's praying with a coworker. Give us the courage that we need to do the ordinary things. And Lord, when we face the Goliaths in our life, those giants that you have called us to slay, that it will be about you that we will look for ways to make it to be about you instead of trying to do it on our own strength. Instead of being independent from you, we will wake up with that, that vision to serve you and to need you to be so dependent on you. Go with us this week. We want to walk with you. Thank you for my church family that I can rely on. Thank you for my home group that I've been able to share struggles with and core group that I'm able to, to dive even deeper in, Lord. Give us those outlets that we need where, where others and you inside of them get a minister to us. Help us to be humble enough to reach out. 
Be with us as we go this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.